This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 145 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest is Oscar Johnson. He's director of the Stockholm Free World Forum, a Swedish foreign and security policy think tank, and associated researcher at the Swedish Defense University. Previously, he was a subject matter expert at the Policy and Plans Department at the Swedish Armed Forces Headquarters. Our conversation focuses on his recent book, The Russian Understanding of War, Blurring the Lines Between War and Peace. In it, Oscar Johnson tracks the history of Russian tactics and strategies and how Russia sees itself in the online global community. Stay with us. In my book, I'm going through the starting point at the, at the Soviet Union, where the Russian understanding or the Soviet understanding of war was very much uh, similar to the, to the one in the West. It was defined by the use of armed violence um, to political purpose. The worldview was, of course, very, very different. Um, it relied on a, on a Soviet uh, Marxist-Leninist methodology with a very holistic view um, to which all military theory had to agree. Um, the idea that war has been defined by armed violence has been the orthodoxy both uh, both in Russia and the West, and it's been that way up until I would argue around 2012, um, when a lot of uh, things started happening. Um, you see say, statements such as the the boundaries between war and peace are blurring, and non-military means are becoming so much more important than military. That's fundamentally changed what what modern war is. Take me through some of the specifics here. I'm, I'm thinking specifically um, the collapse of the Soviet Union. How did that affect things? And, and Russia being on their own after that, um, w- how did that affect their place in the world? One of the arguments I'm making is, is really that um, the Russian understanding of war has very much come as a reverse engineer um, process from from what it has been fearing, what it has been most significant threats. Um, that might seem obvious, but if you we think of Russia today as a great power uh, exerting influence all across the world and influencing U.S. elections and, and intervening in Syria, but um, if you look at modern Russian history, it's rather been one of uh, fragility and, and state weakness. So you had the collapse of the Soviet Union, as you mentioned. You had a a coup attempt in 91, you had 93, you had Yeltsin bombing his own parliament. Um, and you have Russia's neighbors, some of its uh, most important neighbors, have had regime change where uh, people have come on the street, protested against fraudulent elections and, and autocrats, and then overthrown them. And this has become constructed very much as a way of, of Western warfare. In, in essence, the Russian leadership sees us in the West as so effective at exerting influence through um, informational means, ideological influence to intelligence services, to be able to brainwash the population, to make them revolt um, against the leaders. And this is not only a post-Soviet phenomenon. We talk about the Rose Revolution in Georgia 2003, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine 2004, and the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan 2005. Um, but these have also had effects in Russia. I mean, some of the most prominent uh, Russian opposition leaders were present in the Orange Revolution in Ukraine 
2004 and tried to start a similar revolution in Russia 2005. And similarly, the Arab Spring protest also, um, which is the Convention of Wisdom, is a revolution started on social media, uh, also had mm. it spread to Russia uh, for the Russian presidential and parliamentary elections 2011-2012. So this has been seen to be done by a mix of political subversion, information, warfare. And that's just really the two main drivers that I identify in my book as being what is changing the Russian understanding of war. And, and so what are the changes that we're seeing from them? How, how has it played out? You can see since since. 2012 to 2014, you really see shift among all the main um, figures of Russian military theory and political elites by um, really giving a strong emphasis to to notions such as non-military means are becoming more important than military. You can see the Russian military doctrine, for instance, uh, including um, things such as um, informational influence on on, on patriotic uh, traditions being included in the threat perception. And I think this this wider understanding of war obviously gives most change in, in where are we now. Um, in a sense, uh, us in the West, we might see that, oh, something occurs, let's try to solve it so we can leave it behind. Whereas from the Russian perspective, there's a genuine conviction that um, us in the West are, are, are after them. Um, and that we are in um, the blurred lines between war and peace. We're not living in, in, in full peace. And this view, this genuine conviction among the Russian leadership is also the backdrop to why they are willing to take such risks that they are, such as in the interference in the U.S. elections or using uh, chemical weapons uh, on NATO territory, um, such as the case of, of, of the U.K., in, in your estimation, does Russia have um, an outsized influence on the rest of the world? I mean, given the size of their economy, um, do, do they have perhaps more influence than is justified? Absolutely. I think, I think one of the things which is most, which is most difficult is really, um, is really assessing how much Russia, influence does Russia have and why. And I think there's, especially in the U.S. under Obama, there was a very, very strong tendency in, in looking at economy, looking at demography, uh, and really concluding that um, Russia cannot be a long-term threat. Let's not put our focus here. It's China that is the, the big threat. Let's forget about Russia. There's several problems with this. Um, one of them is, first of all, is these estimates are most often uh, measured in, uh, in, in nominal terms, not in purchasing power parity. So if the ruble drops 50% to budget the dollar, it doesn't mean that the Russian arms expenditure has gone down by 50%. Uh, so for those who are saying that, well, you know, Russia is spending as, as much as, as France on defense, you can ask anyone, well, who would you want to fight a war with, the Russian army or the French army, if you're going to fight a war in Europe? So if you compare mm. it there, and there's a very good study that came out very recently with, from Center of Naval Analysis that said in purchasing power terms, uh, you know, the Russian military spending is not a tenth of the American. It's rather almost a fourth. Um, and then if you divide U.S. military to the rest of the world, then you can see in, in just economic terms that you have a peer competitor. What I think is important here is, is to, to remember that um, Russia is acting the way it is because it is, in a sense, uncertain. It doesn't have the future view that 
that China has that, that knows that our power position will be better in five years. Our power position will be better in 10 years. To, to the point, what you said, I think what's important to know with Russia is that, yes, they have quite a bad hand, but there's also genuine threat conviction and they're using it very, very effectively. But Russian power mainly comes from its ability to disrupt, to disrupt uh, road societal cohesion, to disrupt um, alliances, to disrupt states. It's never the same way uh, the Chinese influence, which, for instance, can purchase a lot of influence uh, to, to make actors agree with China. So I think they have quite a weak hand, but they're very determined and they're playing it very well. Do the Russians tend to be long-term planners or are they playing the long game here? I think that's, um, I mean, that's a very common debate. Or, or, you know, is, is Putin a strategist or, or is he just a tactician? I think for me, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, a non-issue. I think some of the Russian drivers has been the same for a long, long time. I mean, uh, regime security, great powerness, um, that they're feeling threatened by um, the way that international order is constructed. So let's say they want to renegotiate the way international security is being done. That's a very expensive goal. So a lot of the operations will be, it wouldn't matter how long-term your goal is, what you would do immediately would still be the same. And one of them is, um, you know, to be a great power to renegotiate the international security system is to weaken um, Western cohesion, to weaken EU cohesion, and weaken NATO cohesion. So I think the broad outlines of what will increase Russian influence is definitely there. Um, and the immediate actions to take, the tactical steps are being taken. Um, and then there are, of course, long-term goals. And I think uh, when you asked about long-term, I think you can most clearly see the, the incredible um, long-term approach if you look at Russian intelligence services. You're seeing stories are revealed of, of recruitment of spies that are cultivated. There's one uh, Estonian captain that was um, set a trap for, and he was recruited when he was a captain. And then, you know, eight years later, he was a lieutenant colonel working with NATO affairs, and then he started providing useful information. So there's definitely a very, very long-term game uh, especially among Russian intelligence services. How do Russian intelligence services and uh, U.S. intelligence services, for example, match up? Are, are they playing at a, at a similar level? They're not playing at a, at a similar level. I think they're playing with very, very different preconditions. I think the, the U.S. intelligence service has a technical, uh, technological superiority. Um, but I think Russian and Russian security services has always given more focus to the human aspect, human intelligence, whereas we have become more technologically focused because we don't want to to risk um, human lives in the same extent. I still think the best comparison for this is a KGB defector, uh, Yuri Besmianov, who stated that um, what we think of as intelligence work, as you know, eavesdropping and trying to figure out, trying to be clever and think out what, what the adversary is doing is only 15% uh, of what the KGB is doing, whereas 85% is uh, active measures, ideological subversions, different ways of trying to affect and impact um, the, the target politics. And I think that division is is very likely persist in today's Russian security services that only a little bit and 
But the most of what we are doing is just trying to listen and figure out, whereas they are much more geared towards active, active measures and ideological subversion. Do they have any specific weaknesses? If, if we were to, to target them, are there any particular areas that it would be best for us to focus on? Sure, absolutely. And I think, I think, that's, a, I think that's a really important question to think of, uh, to try and to shift the, the conflict to where you're strong and, and, and the enemy is weak. So if you look at the information sphere, for instance, Russia uses our open societies to, to broadcast a lot of uh, disinformation and subversion. But we have open information systems, so uh, it's hard to shield against that. And conversely, to try and broadcast narratives into the Russian information sphere is also incredibly important. The vast majority of Russians get their main source of news from TV stations. Um, and if you look at what are the 10 biggest TV stations in Russia, you have state-owned channels, you have channels that are owned by Gazprom Media, or uh, channels owned by Novaya Media Grupa, which is owned by Yuri Kovalchuk, Putin close oligarchs. Um, so when you control all the 10 major stations, you can put out a story that is repeated in, in all of them that gives a very, very strong um, illusion of this is being the truth. So in the information sphere, for instance, um, we are very limited. I think in the economic sphere, on the contrary, uh, on the one hand, you have Russia working very hard to build uh, some kind of sovereignty in economic financial means, trying to uh, set up a... a national interbank transfer system so they won't have to rely on SWIFT, which they noted very well what happened to Iran when Iran was sanctioned by SWIFT. Uh, they have issued um, now their own MasterCard and Visa, so they can't be sanctioned by MasterCard and Visa and continue economic transactions. They bought a lot of gold the last decade. They decreased their uh, amount of dollar holdings and bought more Chinese yen and, and euros. But with all that being said, most of the Russian elite um, holdings of money are in the West and they want to move the money there. I think the most effective deterrent thing that, that us in the West have done is the April 2018 sanctions, where we sanctioned uh, a number of key oligarchs, including Oleg Deripaska, who owns um, a big aluminum company, which crashed the aluminum market. That was really, uh, I would argue, an effective sanctions, which is going after a certain number of key individuals, not the Russian population in the broadest, um, not the, for instance, sectoral sanctions that was done after Crimea, not the travel sanctions that was done to nominal figures of the elite um, in, in early 2014. So that, I would argue, would be, uh, for instance, one of the areas where, where Russia have you know, big vulnerabilities. How much of Russia's stance is currently... Um, tied to Putin himself versus you know something historical and systemic, and I guess I'm asking if if uh, if Putin is no longer the leader, will things continue along the same path, or would you expect to see some changes? And there's a there's a brilliant book by by Sam Green and Graham Robinson. Um, would it really start out by you know instead of talking about Putin's Russia, let's talk about Russia's Putin, and they um, really start from the premise that. Uh, being popular is, is just so much more convenient than uh, than being uh, being disliked. So even if you there's real problems with democracy in Russia, trying to be popular is a, is a key priority. So a lot of what what uh, Putin has been doing is very clever populism um, rather than 
him all of a sudden being, you know, some kind of crazy nostalgist that um, lost his mind in a certain sense. I think it's, it's a lot of it's a very calculated populism. So a lot of what he's doing and pushing for is a product of what is, uh, what is perceived as popular. And I think what you alluded to before, Dave, was also that uh, this is a very continuous way of, of looking at the world. If you look at, I don't want to, you know, overgeneralize from, from, from Russian history, but um, the way that Russia perceived its place in the world has always been um, one of great powerness, always wanting to be one of be, being listened to. So I don't think there's any uh, thing that, uh, and, I, and I especially don't think we should calculate our strategy on that, oh, Putin will leave, everything will be, will be good again. I think the most likely mm-hmm. outcome is, is, you know, someone being uh, crowned by the same amount of key stakeholders that are now around Putin would put someone forward that walks, talks and, and, and acts quite, uh, quite similarly to Putin. For those of us uh, here in the U.S., what do you wish we understood? Is is there are, are there any perspectives or insights about Russia that that you feel as though um, if if we only understood this about them, we, we would give us a better perspective, perhaps a better understanding on the interaction that's taking place here? Yeah, I think I think I think the first one is really the one. Um, which I which I mentioned, I criticized the, the Obama administration, but I still think that is very lingering in, in the way that Russia is being understood. Uh, I mean, don't look at Russian economy, uh, which is lackluster, and assume that okay, this threat will go away. Rather, look at you know, look at military capabilities and and ask yourself: Is there anyone that has this amount of advanced um, conventional military capabilities? information warfare capabilities, global intelligence services, cyber operations, um, who can match this, this threat? And I think, I think in the U.S. has approached world affairs to a large degree by having an overwhelming superiority, which is not necessarily conducive to strategy. Rather than by being 10 times stronger than everybody else, you don't need to think that much about how do we deal with this challenge in a you know in a very very sophisticated manner, and I'm not saying uh, that all of U.S. has been has been bad in this, but I think um, in the situation that has been the last 20 years, and especially thinking on Russia has been um, has very has been very down prioritized. And I've run uh, projects with um, U.S. Joint Staff in my when I worked for the Swedish Armed Forces headquarters for a while as well, and it was it was very clear that. Um, Russia expertise had definitely gone. Um, so I would argue for a, um, a rebuilding of that. Are you optimistic looking towards the future of this relationship or are you pessimistic or somewhere in between? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm personally an optimist, but I think uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of looking at the developments to come, I'm trying to be, uh, I'm trying to be a good analyst and, and, and put my mm. own sentiments aside. Um, I think there are there are a number of worrying signs. I don't think that there are many signs that are actually um, very reassuring. And I think if you want to draw the broad lines, um, we're now seeing a big energy transformation uh, driven by, by by climate change, in which most part of the developed worlds are, are just trying to reduce reliance on on fossil fuel. And 
you could make an argument that one of the reasons why things hasn't gotten worse is a very strong economic interdependence between uh, Russia and the West that, well, they, they need us to um, to buy the fossil fuels. They need to sell their fossil fuels, but otherwise they won't have an economy. So in with increasing or decreasing reliance on on um, on Russia for 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 fossil fuels, um, that detachment can increase, and that could also increase um, the, the parameters for for conflict. Um, and I also think that there will be a point which I said with the comparison to China that China is confident because they know that things are going to look better for them in twenty years and ten years, so then they can sit down and wait. Whereas if you look at Russia now and you see when is the power discrepancy you know, locally, regionally, the biggest. Because now, after belatedly, a lot of, a lot of states in the West are starting to wake up and starting to rearm again. That might be a, um, a dire conclusion that the, the power discrepancy might be the biggest, you know, because Russia has been arming very um, intensely since 20, 2008 might be the coming five years. Um, and adding that to the disagreements within the EU and, and, and within NATO, um, they might see an, an, an opportunity to do something militarily. But I think primarily I would be most worried about the non-military operations, which are ever ongoing. We hear a lot about this notion that the boundaries between war and peace are blurring. What's your assessment of that? Do you think that's actually happening? That is a statement that has been very sensationalized. Oh, oh, the Russians saying that uh, the boundaries of war and peace are blurring. But I actually also think it's it's hard to get away from the fact that they are. If you look at cyber operations, for instance, you cannot start in the day of the conflict. Uh, in order to be able to, to, to reach an effect, you need to be penetrating the adversaries' uh, systems already in peacetime. The same for information psychological Warfare or, or you know, propaganda disinformation. To get your narratives out there, you, you need to spend years, as was seen with Russian influence in the, the 2016 and the 2020 elections, they seem to be doing now. You need to build up accounts on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook that gets these followings. Um, the biggest Russians account had, uh, there was a number of them having more than 100,000 followers. So... There's a lot of this in, in, let's call it new domains, where everything you want to do in a conflict needs to be done in peacetime, and therefore um, it's it's hard to read. Is this a, you know is this an escalation step or uh, is the is this business as usual? So I do think that in that sense, the the boundaries between war and peace are blurring, but I think at the same time also um, ultimately declaring yourself to be in a war. Um, is a political act. So it's always been one of up to the state itself to put the foot down and say, this is where the line is. So it's it's also relieving yourself a bit from responsibility of saying that it gets harder and harder because it's always been a political decision. Yeah, and it seems as though it, when it comes to cyber that the leaders don't want to put those lines down. They, they want to, to keep them movable. Yeah, so far um, I think that the overall can take has been not to attribute who's doing what, but then I think the Mueller report is is fantastically interesting because it shows not only that attribution is doable, um, in that case, attribution was fantastic. I mean, the U.S. sanctioned all the way down to individual intelligence officers who 
they knew who pushed which button when. And that also unders- underwrites the problem of attribution is that most often it's not in the political interest to spell it out who it is. But I think that's more needed. And I think we might see more of that in order to, to deter, um, just like Mueller Report did. Our thanks to Oscar Johnson for joining us. His book is The Russian Understanding of War, Blurring the Lines Between War and Peace. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 